Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The first time I had the opportunity to chat with my next guest, Killer Mike, he was just coming off the release of his solo album, I Pledge Allegiance to the Grind. It was back in 2007. It's now 14 years later, and I'm proud to report, Killer Mike is still on his grind. He's one half of the critically acclaimed hip-hop duo Run the Jewels, whose fourth album dropped last year. He's active in politics, too. He recently campaigned for Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock to represent his home state of Georgia. He also joined Bernie Sanders in Bessemer, Alabama, to support the Amazon workers trying to form a union there. Mike is on screen a lot more these days, too. He's acted in movies like Baby Driver and TV shows like The Good Lord Bird. When he and I talked in 2019, he had his very own Netflix show, a documentary series called Trigger Warning with Killer Mike. In the show, Killer Mike tackles some of the most complicated racial and social issues in America, and like everything Killer Mike does, he does not do it halfway. In the first episode, Mike tries to spend three days buying, using, and consuming products that have only come from the black community, and it turns out to be very, very difficult. In this scene, Mike heads to the black-owned Doggone Good Barbecue in Athens, Georgia, where he meets LP, his co-MC in Run the Jewels. At this point, Mike hasn't had a meal in a long time, almost an entire day, so he is very excited to finally get something he's allowed to eat. Yeah, here we go. Black-owned restaurant. Black-owned, baby. Pro-black. Black-owned produce and and, and meat, probably, right, from a black farm. What's up? Excuse me, sir. Yes, sir. My white friend just reminded me I'm living so black that I'm technically only supposed to eat meat from a black farm or produce. Please tell me, like, this came from the West Georgia, like, Black Farmers Collaborative, or... No, it didn't. May I get a to-go box, please? You're a good man, Michael Render, and I gotta be honest with you. It's really, really, honestly, some of the best barbecue that I've ever had. Why are you still eating in front of me? It's just at the hotel room that I was in last night. Some of the room service, you know, the, the lobster, um... You ate lobster? I had a lobster roll. I was in a park bench. Yeah. That is the literal definition of white privilege. Yeah. How's the macaroni? Mm. The only weed I've been able to find has been trash Mexican weed, which I can't smoke because it's Mexican. Weed dealers aren't white. You can the get- The growers are white. <sighs> like you guys gentrified marijuana. Yeah, we're an unstoppable force. That's what all the books say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Killer Mike, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Now, how y'all doing? Then that. That um, that all the, that's what all the books say actually comes from me reading um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. <laughs> I feel like that was the line of the show. I watched a number of episodes, <laughs> and I kept thinking back to that's what all the books say. <laughs> I want to get a T-shirt made to say "White people want stay woke." Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, I'm I'm so happy to have you on Bullseye. I looked it up. The last time I interviewed you was on the phone, and it was. I, I was thinking five or seven years ago, but it was actually 12 years ago. Oh, wow. So I guess, what have you been up to? Uh, well, uh, funny thing. I, I did uh, started in um, 
have yet to finish the series of Underground's called I Pledge Allegiance to the Grind. I made it up to Pledge 3. Then I made rap music with this interesting guy named LP from Brooklyn, formerly of Company Flow. And we developed a friendship and bond that seems to be unbreakable and dropped three classic duo albums, Corona Jews 1, 2, and 3. Um, and, you know, by my superstition, you have to be four albums, four classic albums in before you're officially a group. And um, that that's worthy of being talked about. So we're working on Run the Jewels 4 and securing our place in, in mythological, you know, rap music history. And So how did you end up in Run the Jewels? Because Run the Jewels is aesthetically very different from the records that you were making mm-hmm. the last time I interviewed you. Yeah, but... I don't think anyone who's born, who's been born, is better equipped to rap over LP beats than me. And I think that it was just a matter of me and LP finding one another. And you know how in 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 any mythology, the hero must go on this um this journey or this quest, and you end up finding yourself as you burn off old things. You know, I think that when I came in the music industry, I had a feeling about the music I wanted to make because even the stuff I made that got me my deal was more in lines with Run the Jewels than the stuff you ended up hearing me make in the beginning. But I think it was about finding my way to it. And me, Ellen and I finding ourselves in a way where once we found each other, we were absence of ego, absence of expectations, and just kind of open to make dope. You're also grown adults. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's where the ego and the expectation, like when you're young, you have expectations and your ego is often getting in the way of your creativity and your growth. So, yeah, we were adults, 35 years old. I mean, LP had run a record label that put out some really important records. Yeah, absolutely. The record label was done. You had been signed to a major, put out a record on a major. You started your own record label. Like, you had been through... The underground. You'd been through the ringer by then. Yeah, yeah. And and so when you get there, you know, it's like um, Clyde Drexler going to Houston. Like, I've spent all this time being great in Portland, and nobody was watching Trailblazer Ball at that time. And now I'm in Houston. And now Do I'm not ball. speak ill of Kevin Duckworth. No, yo, I got no problem with the Trailblazers. I'm just simply saying, Drexler and Houston brought those rings home, you know. And Run of Jewels is that. We are, we are kicking left and right. That's what we're going to continue to do, hopefully, the rest of our careers. How did you meet LP? I knew of his work in the Perithio. But... Um, and I think it's important to clarify, like, I'm a, I love East Coast, the sound of East Coast. I'm, I mean, I'm as, all hip-hop nerds, you know, our homage goes back to East Coast music. So it wasn't hard for me to love his music and stuff once exposed. But our, we had a mutual friend in Jason DeMarco, who's a fan of both of us, and he works at Adult Swim. And he put us together. He gave me an opportunity to make rap music, to essentially just make the music I always wanted to make without commercial expectation. Just make the record you always wanted to make. LP was supposed to do three beats. I got in. I rapped over three beats. I decided this guy's supposed to be producing for me. He was making an album. I was like, F*** that shit. You're producing my whole album, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious that this first record, there was this weird period where Adult Swim, a sub-television network, mm-hmm. a television sub-network. Or whatever uh, it is. Yeah. Half of a television network. Yeah. They put out a, I remember they put out a Witch Doctor album. Yeah. But I was like com- utterly baffled at the idea that the guys from Squidbillies, <laughs> no no offense to Squidbillies, it was funny, were like, oh yeah, and also we were trying to bring Flying Lotus around. <laughs> well, Jason is, is amazingly good at picking TV programming, right? Um, but Jason has a musical ear that's amazing. You know, Jason is, a, you know, he's he's diverse in his listenership and... 
because he's a pure fan and he doesn't have any aspiration of being a music executive, he only puts together this stuff because it's dope. You know, he put Killer Mike and Flying Lotus together when we did Swimming. He put me and LP together and thought, you guys could potentially make something dope. So, you know, I, I say that just to say to all the fans out there, like your your dreams, your imaginations, you know, they, they come true. So follow whatever you're passionate about, whatever you're good at. And if you get an opportunity to hook up a super producer and an amazing rapper, do that too, because Jason did it without expectations. He just did it. And, and, and now you have Run the Jewels. When your first album came out and didn't do very well. Yeah. Was there a time when you thought you there you might have to find something else to do with your life? Well, relatively speaking, not do very well in the early 2000s is selling like three to 500,000 records and 50 Cent sells 10 million records. So, right. You know what I'm saying? So not doing very well 15 years removed is amazing. You know, they're celebrating artists going gold again. But, you know, for me, what I, what I considered is maybe I'm not built for this commercial rap. I was going to be a rapper. It's all I wanted to do. And because I went to Texas and met people like Lil Flip and Hump, Paul Wall and Chameleonaire, Slim Thug, and I saw that independently you could make your way. Now, what I wasn't prepared for was the death of CDs, the increase of streaming and stuff. But I can say things like MySpace, Facebook, later IG, Twitter have helped me in my independent career and to grow. So I knew I was going to be rapping. And when I wanted to quit, my wife was like, this is what you were put on earth to do and you're going to keep doing it. So for the two years, I got really down and really beat up and depressed, you know, didn't get out of bed and <laughs> didn't take full advantage of it. It was doing, you know, it was just having a great wife that was kicking me in my ass saying, you got to do this. And that's what brought us to Pledge Allegiance to the Grind 2, Pledge Allegiance to the Grind 3 and later rap music. Speaking of MySpace, how much of your success would you attribute to having your interview with me from 12 years ago up on your MySpace for a long time. Lots of it. You know, <laughs> Lots of like, I'm not going to say a majority, <laughs> but like 30%, right? Yeah, in the early days, man, that, that you know, <laughs> having those things are big looks. Like people people don't understand how much the, the interview and how much um, people who are on that side of the mic that are firm believers and help use their platform to expose the talent, what it does. If it wouldn't have been for those interviews and if it wouldn't have been for things like MySpace and what I call the pledge heads, people that have followed my career all the way through the Pledge of Allegiance series until Run the Jewels, then I wouldn't be here. So I'm very appreciative for those days and very appreciative for that core group of fans in particular. When you went to college, which uh, you did for, what, a year, year and a half, something yep, like yep, that? Yep, yep, um, Did you think that you your career was going to be as an MC, or did you yeah, think you Yeah, were... I wanted to be. I mean, I dropped out in, in chase of the rap thing. You know, once I got, once I got attached to Big Boy and them and I knew I could do it, I decided to sue it, you know, pursue it full speed, but I shouldn't have done that. I should have stayed in college because I ended up getting a deal around the same time I would have graduated. So that if I have a regret, that's regret. I went to Morehouse. I'll let you guys Google that. It's a pretty prestigious college. So, you know, I should have stayed in, but I didn't. And with that said, you know, I can go back and I will, but I should have stayed in. So the kids that are out there that are passionate about it and that are smart enough to get into it, stay. And not just because of the education you get or saying that's going to save you, the networking opportunity you have in college the people you're going to meet and where they're going to go. You know, if you're good to them and you build good networks, it just makes your transition to whatever you're going to do easier. How did you meet Big Boy? I met Big Boy because his good friend went to Morehouse also, CeeLo Reddick from um, Savannah, and his brother went to Morris Brown, and we were all little homies, and we all wanted to make music too, and we were trying to impress James's big brother. Well, I can imagine you were trying to impress him. He was basically the... Certainly the king of Atlanta hip-hop at the time and yeah. one of the kings of hip-hop Southern in hip -hop the world. Period, yeah. At, yeah. at that time, yeah. And, and still is. Big Boy has not stopped working. At this point, his solo career is longer than his outcast career. 
You know, that's a, that's amazing when you think about it. You know, what I mean, I'm um, I'm incredibly impressed by his work ethic, and you know, he employs over a hundred people. You know, and through touring and through through all the studio and things of that nature, like he's one of the most focused businessmen and MCs I've ever come across, and I try to model much of myself after him. Did you pass him a tape or a CD, or did you <laughs> no, give him some bars in person? He had me freestyling, and um, I wasn't pressuring him. I was pressing up my own stuff, working my butt off. And Rock D, the guy who brought Kryptonite to be, is an amazing MC. Uh, he's also the guy that you hear on the end of Kill Jill um, doing a little pattern. You know, hold up, listen. Just like I told Coco, my low is pimping. That's Rock D. Me and Rock D were messing around, freestyling. And um, Big was getting his hair braided by Princess from Princess Palace Braiders and he was like, yo, I like you, and I'm going to give you a deal. And I was like, I appreciate it, bro. And I was like, I still got a pound of weed in my trunk I got to sell. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I went back to focusing on that. And, you know, like a year year or two later, he called me like, hey, I really want to do it. Let's get it. How old were you, like 20? Um, I might have been 23, 24. I mean, 23 or 24 is old for a rapper getting a deal yeah definitely was then now not so much but yeah i didn't yeah because what they do is they saw you at 24 and tell the world you were 22 21 but you know i didn't care how old i was like i don't care now i don't think about my age i've had that discussion with stacks before me and dre talk him just saying you know i'm just trying to see what these younger guys are doing just you know it's this and he'll feel you know a certain way sometimes you know he say. i'm just like man i don't feel no way but like when i get in the room i want to have a dopest style in the room you know so my whole thing is, I, I guess I've avoided thinking about my age because I've always wanted to to style. You know, I've if you hear me on different tracks, different features with different people, I probably am one of at least the top ten rappers in terms of being able to style flip, depending on what beat. You know what I mean? And I've always taken pride in that because it's not easy. So for me, age kind of dies with style. Like E forty is ageless to me. Because his style is ageless. Like you You're can't, pandering to me now, but nah, go ahead. Now, nah, 40 Waters, what's up? Like, I'm from Atlanta. Like, Atlanta is the Bay Area part deuce. Like, you understand? Like, too short, 40, you know what I mean? Like, we grew up on this, on some, on some player shit. So, for for me, like, his style is time, it's literally timeless. You know what I mean? Scarface, who I consider the greatest rapper of all time, style is timeless. So, that's what I would rather be. Timeless than, than really think about age. When you came out, you came out with... Outcast, Big Boy signed you. You won a Grammy for one of the first records that you made that came out. Yeah, uh, an Outcast song. Yeah, that must have been incredibly heady because that was Outcast at the, the height of their yeah. artistic and commercial powers. Both. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was a trip, you know, because you know you have to reconcile. This is not your record, so the Grammy you're on. But with that said, I recognized I wasn't just a benefactor of good luck. I ripped that. Verse. You sure did. <laughs> so, I, mean, I remember in I remember being in my dorm room, watching MTV Two. Yeah, had the music videos on it. Yeah, watching that video and was like, oh, who's that dude? He just ripped it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was very proud of myself then and now. I wish I would have went to a ceremony then because I won and we didn't because I think Jay Z had us protesting that year because they weren't showing the rap division. And then when I went to the Grammys last year because we were nominated for the Chase Me song, we didn't win. So. When I didn't go, I won. When I went, I didn't win. That was really sad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll finish up with Killer Mike after a quick break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Hey folks, it's me, James Arthur M., host of Minority Corner, your home through these bewild times for weekly doses of pop culture, history, news, nerdy stuff, and more through a BIPOC queer and allied lens. Sexy ass from Moonlight, who was in the third act of Moonlight, Trevante Rhodes, who was like, yes, yes, Oh, I'm all grown up and I, uh, I work and I work, I work out. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Mommy, have a case. This is just, you know what? It's with a long pandemic, girl. What are you doing now to deconstruct this system? He basically did a covert genocide of Black people. So join me and some of your new BFFs every Friday here on Maximum Fun to stay informed, empowered, and have some fun. Minority Corner, because together, we're the majority. On NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we talk about movies, music, and more. Like why The Great Pottery Throwdown is a comforting binge watch. And a look back at some of Chadwick Boseman's essential performances. All of that in around 20 minutes every weekday. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is the rapper, actor, and television host, Killer Mike. He's half of the critically acclaimed rap duo, Run the Jewels. When we talked in 2019, Mike had just hosted his first TV show. Trigger Warning with Killer Mike is an exploration of issues like education, small business, and crime, and how they intersect with race. Let's get back into our conversation. When you started uh, working with LP, what was it that clicked for the two of you? Just listen to me on his beats. That's what it is. It's just, it sounds like it's supposed to be, you know, it's like Ice Cube over Sir James beat or, or, you know, or, or, you know, it's like hearing, hearing Chuck over Bomb Squad beat or even Cube over Bomb Squad beat. It just fits. I don't know why. And I don't waste time questioning why. I don't know why I love my wife more than any other woman I've ever loved. You know, I just know there's something so special about her. I can't not love her like that. So I don't question those mysteries. I just go and, and, you know, hopefully one day it won't, you know, I mean, hopefully it'll never stop. And if it ever does, we're just going to have the most fantastic run we've ever had. You know, were you surprised at how well uh, it worked? You must have just thought nah, this was I just like the a first co- day. cool thing you were doing. Nah, I, I once I heard, once he played, he played big beats for me first, and he played another couple beats, and I knew then like this guy's supposed to be making beats for me for the rest of my life. I knew, like I fell in love instantly. It was like me and my wife. I knew within two weeks of knowing her, like I want to marry you. Now we, she said no, and we spent two, three years breaking each other's hearts. You know what I mean? But with me and L, at first he was like, nah, I can't do it. I got to do my own album. I'm like, nah, B, you got to do this album. And I aggravated the heck out of him for 90 days, him and Jason, until he, till he succumbed and just said, all right, I'll do the record. Were you surprised at the number of white people showing up for your work? Well, I seen it without... <laughs> at that point? I'm not I, saying, look, actually that I'm a white person, no. and, and there were, there, <laughs> yeah. some of us were showing up before. Yeah, and I'm going to definitely say I was definitely encouraged by your whiteness. Like, I was... <laughs> There's, I had learned from Outcasts that, you know, the people who you most look like or who like you or who, who you're making the music or that even inspire the music you're making, they're valuable to you because they, they're there. They, they, that's what makes you your community, you know, grows you, your village, right? But who appreciates you, you have no choice in. You just, you gleefully accept that appreciation and you sing, rap, and dance off while you have the chance because you're lucky enough to have this job, right? So as much as the South loved Three Six Mafia and as dope as Paul and Juicy are, you know, I don't know if we'd hear the sounds that are imitating Three Six Mafia now if it wasn't for the white hipster crowd in Williamsburg that somehow rediscovered them and all of a sudden you'd be walking into Max Fish hearing Project Pack in 2013 
where I know I can hear Pat in Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, North Florida, but I didn't know Pat was playing in Williamsburg. You know what I mean? So you love who loves you. And my audience, no matter what color, race, creed, or religion they are, if they're rocking with the, the raw, dirty, that's hip-hop that me and L do, then that's fine by me. You know, it doesn't matter to me what color you are. I, I still love you. If you if you love Wu-Tang and Outkast as much as I do, we probably can kick it, you know? When you were campaigning with Bernie Sanders uh, oh, gee. in a couple of years ago when he was running for president, uh, I found myself, when you first started campaigning with him, I found myself thinking, like, how, where did this come from? There was a DJ <laughs> in his campaign. And when they were asked about um, getting black influences from the music world, this DJ, I can't remember saying it, I'll save my life, unfortunately. But he was adamant about them checking out Killer Mike. You know, so the work, the work, you know, spoke for me and he spoke up for me. And Senator Sanders, and I have to give a lot of credit to Cornell West at the time, who was a part of it, who co-signed me. And a, and a bigger, bigger, bigger just... Um, Shout out thanks and gratitude to former senator out of Ohio, Nina Turner, who now re leads our revolution. She is a Shirley Chisholm of our time. She's an absolutely dynamic politician and advocate on the behalf of the people, one of the more powerful organizers and mobilizers I've ever seen and should be nationally talked about by people who are members of the Democratic Party. And I don't understand why she's not, but I'm going to do you know everything I can to yell her name. But she's a person that really kept me engaged. After I saw, you know, the DNC sabotage, what I thought was a campaign that could have defeated Trump, after I've seen them make, you know, poor decisions afterwards, you know, in terms of if you want to accept him in your party or not, or you like him or not, you can't say he didn't electrify the Democratic vote in millennials. You can't say that his policy has not affected the greater fabric. It has in everything from marijuana law to um, the raising of minimum wage across the nation, as, as we're seeing, and to a grander push for Medicare for all. So the OG knew what he was doing. And I think that Senator Turner was um, a very big part of the reason I stayed engaged and is a very big part of the reason I'm still engaged locally and nationally. So I look for her, hopefully, to do something. You know, I don't know what's next, but she's one of the people who I admire, Senator Sanders, um, I, like everyone else within our revolution, would love to see him run again in 2020. I don't think anyone else is going to beat him, is going to beat the current guy in there. I think to put out fire, you need water. You know, I think that the only way you get Magneto out of office is have Professor X, you know. So we'll we'll see what happens. I think a lot of people see in that movement the possibility that Issues uh, having to do with race, issues having to do with the unique experiences, particularly being African-American in yeah. this country, but uh, any ethnic category other than white yeah. certainly can be subsumed into class rhetoric yeah. and ignored. Was that something that you were worried about? It's something I worry about because... We are allowed to argue race in this country because race is polarizing and we all belong to a tribe, right? So whether you're ethnic white, you know, or black or a descendant of a slave African-American or an African-American that's an immigrant, you get chopped up in all these things that cause these extreme arguments. But if we spent as much time talking about John Brown in schools as we do Robert E. Lee, how would the radically different how would relationships between black and white kids who are both poor in West Virginia be different or in Ohio be different? 
How does that start to change? How does solidarity start to change amongst people who don't look like each other? And how does that change for government? Are people harder to control when they understand, yes, we're different? When people say, well, I don't look past race or I don't see race, I don't hear yeah, it's a lie. I don't look past race. I see a white man in front of me with a glorious beard <laughs> and, and hair maxes on. You also have a glorious beard. Thank you, sir. Yeah. But I also see an ally. You know what I mean? And that's what matters most. You know, if we are at war for the, our very freedoms and lives, no war is won without allies. And to too tightly cling to my tribe and the tribalisms that we have makes me less likely to be cooperative and, and, and collaborate with others that also have my best interests or the better interests of us all. So I try my best not to let it get in the way. I worry that we all let it get in the way too much. And instead of arguing issues of class that can be won by us all, we end up all suffering more because we, we get baited into something that's race. That, you know, it feels like race because I'm black, but it also is going to feel like poverty, you know, if you're North Georgia and white. You know, it all it's unfair either way. But I can't think just because it's my tribe, it's us, just us. We all serve the same masters. We all have the same enemies. Outside our studio behind my desk, you know, six feet from here, yeah. is a poster that my mom bought me at the flea market for Dick Gregory's presidential campaign. Okay. Dick Gregory, who was... Um, my friend. Of, oh, there you go. One of the most important stand-up comics of the 1960s. Yes. Quit quit show business. Yes, and spent the next fifty or so years. Yes, uh, as an activist. Yes, 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 yes. I got a chance to see him, thanks to my sister Zoe, um, who's like a sister to me. She's a um, amazing woman. She's a lesbian woman out of Chicago. Um, amazing. She manages stand up comics and acts, and she had me and Ti get on the phone with him. Um, about three years ago, he cursed us out really badly. <laughs> Tip hung up, called me back later, said, what did he say? I was like, man, he cursed out bad. But um, <clears throat> we went to see him at a show. I befriended him, and for the last three years of his life, was a very good friend. And um, one of the most wise and smart and brilliant men. And personally knew Malcolm and Martin and Megger. And was just about the work of freeing people. And not just black people, but freeing people's minds. And like Carlin, like Bruce, like Bill Hicks, like Pryor before him. Um, I mean, a lot of those people aren't even before him, but just, just also comedians. He did a lot more to enlighten me that it's easier to teach people. Because I saw him when he started coming back and doing some comedy. He's always actually handling them, taking them around. Trigger warning, I knew it would work. I, even though I was nervous, I knew it was would work when people understood Mike is funny. He's satirical. He has a subversive sense of humor. And he's, you know, people who know me, you know Michael, know he's always saying this. He's always pushing the line by saying what if. If I knew if people got that part, it'll work. So I'm thankful for Mr. Gregory for showing me that to an example. You know, by watching him, I got a chance to just see him in regular conversation. He'd say stuff and it just open your mind like, oh, and that's, that's all I want to do with the show, to get people to create conversation and to be open from different perspectives. Well, Mike, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was nice to see you. Oh, man, I love the show. Thank you. <laughs> Come Thank back you. anytime. All right, love. Killer Mike, folks. Before we say goodbye, let's go out on a Run the Jewels track. This song is from their most recent album, RTJ4. It's called Ooh La La, and it features Greg Nice and DJ Premier. 
law, we is raw stars. Straight talk talk, oysters on the half shell, switch your bar. Like a and the bitch still, still raw, raw. I'm a dog, I'm a dirty dog. <laughs> oh, dirty bastard, go in your jaw. Shimmy, shimmy, y'all. Got in the hemi, go and gimme, gimme, y'all. Pugilistic, my linguistics, RJ Ruler damage, y'all. And I rap it, pornographic, set it up the camera, That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I learned that the construction site dirt that covers my car every day is something called fugitive dust. Uh, So... I don't know. Maybe that's useful to you. Didn't help me, unfortunately. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.